I wanted to thank, uh, thank you all for being so warm and welcoming uh, to Jenny and I, my wife and I, Jenny. Um, we, we have just been blessed to be here with you all, and we've gotten a chance to meet some of you, and so hello again. And uh, for those of you that we haven't met, please uh, don't feel shy. Please come up to us after the service and, and talk to us, or if you're coming out tonight to the Q&A time, we, we want to get to know, get to meet at least as many people as we can. So um, it's good to be here. I just wanted to thank Jeremy and, and the elders and the pastors who have kind of put together a really uh, kind of a whirlwind of a schedule, but it's been great because we've been able to meet um, lots of you and, and hear your stories and hear how you are enthusiastic and, and just excited about what God is doing in this church and how you're excited about the gospel going forth in, in, in perhaps a new way um, as, as the building opens up. So, thank you. I want to open up with a question this morning. Do you have heroes? Do you have one or two or three heroes in your life? You know, people that you honor, remember, look up to in some way. Maybe there's people here that you would say, this person is my hero. Maybe it's someone, a gentleman in this room right now that you'd say, you know, that person, I respect him. He is my hero. Now, I have heroes. I think we all have heroes. Um, I would say my father is a hero. I'd mention that he has passed away. He is certainly one of my heroes. I've been recently reading about a missionary named John Gibson Patent. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides Island. I think it's now called Vanuatu. This man committed 40 years of his life, 40 years of his life to ministry in these islands. He lost four of his ten children. He lost his first wife. He struggled with sickness, danger from the natives who were cannibals. This guy walked through a lot for the sake of the gospel. Now, I love hearing stories like this about great men and women of the Lord who has been faithful and, and resilient and sacrificial. And these stories kind of stir up in me new desires. They, they inspire me. They help me to praise the Lord. But they also kind of burden me. You know, every time I hear stories like this, I realize very quickly that I'm nowhere near that radical. I'm nowhere near that sacrificial. I'm nowhere near that obedient. Sometimes I don't like coming to church on Sunday mornings. Here's why. I hear a message, another message, about more things that I'm supposed to obey. And I'm still working on a message from three weeks ago. So sometimes God's commands for me, for my life, His laws for my life, they feel heavy, they feel burdensome. And I wonder this morning whether you can relate, whether you've, you've come here this morning and, and you feel that weight of the Lord's commandments on your heart. I think people carry lots of burdens from when there are children all the way to adulthood. You start early though, right? The, the burden of your parents' expectations. You have the social pressure of your peers, uh, the demands of education, worldly success and accomplishment. You get married, you have some kids, and all of a sudden you've got the expectations of being a spouse now and being a parent. And then we become Christians at some point in our lives. All of a sudden you've got a new set of things that you need to do, a new set of expectations on your life. Read the Bible, pray. Go to church. Attend a small group. Be holy. 
Share the gospel. Love people. Now there's other loads too, and some of these are, are maybe more difficult for us to bear. The, the burden of pornography or other besetting sins. The fear of people. That can be a burden. The burden of singleness. Now I find Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28, just fascinating. And I know some of you know these words. Let me read them to you. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So on one hand, Jesus says, if you come to me, if you come to me, the Christian life is going to be easy and light and restful. But that's not all that Jesus said. There's another side of uh, another side to Jesus' easy, light, and restful Christianity. You know, in, in, in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are over 500 imperatives that Jesus has given us to obey. Over 500 commands for us to obey. So on one hand, Jesus says, if you come to me, this is going to be easy. The Christian life is easy in some way, if you come to me. But on the other hand, he says, I am the Lord of the universe and you owe me your complete allegiance. Do you feel that tension there? How do we reconcile this tension in Jesus' words? I know a lot of Christians who, who are struggling with this tension and they do nothing to resolve this tension by looking into His Word. And so as a result, they do one of two things. They either give up and jump ship they abandon the faith or they, they kind of slug it out year by year. They slug it out and they die miserable Christians. I believe that resolving this kind of tension, it's essential because it helps us to get at the heart of what Christianity is all about. Resolving this tension helps us to see how unique and how compelling the Christian gospel actually is. So we're going to look at Micah chapter 6. You can turn there with me. Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It's page 923 in your pew Bible. And while you're turning there, let me just give you briefly some background. Micah is one of the minor prophets and the themes in the minor prophets, the two major themes are judgment and salvation. And Micah has those same two themes. He's preaching to the two capital cities of the northern and southern kingdoms, so Samaria and Jerusalem. There's a lot of sin going on, lots of sin going on. There's corruption in the government, but probably the biggest sin is the rich and the corrupt government are treating the poor and the marginalized horribly. And so what we have here in the book of Micah is a collection of sermons that Micah has given at different occasions to address these issues of sin. So let's read Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against His people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. 
I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray for God's blessing upon His Word. Pray with me. Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see wonders from Your Word. Father, we confess that too often we are a burdened, joyless people. So speak to us this morning, Father. Give us a clear word. Convict us of sin. Encourage us with grace. Deepen our faith in the Gospel. Send Your Spirit now so that we may see the truth and the beauty of Your Gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I see in this passage of Scripture three pictures that I hope will help us to resolve the tension in Jesus' words. Okay? And they, they all center around God's grace. So the, the first picture I see is a picture of remembering God's grace. Second, forgetting God's grace or avoiding God's grace. And the third picture I see is a, a picture of responding to God's grace. So remembering, forgetting, and responding to God's grace. That's where we're going to go. But first, you see in the first few verses, God kind of assembles the courts. This is a courtroom scene, right? So you see in verse 1, uh, God calls Micah to be his prosecutor. He says, stand up, plead your case before the mountains. He's calling out Micah to, be, to continue to be his prophet. See, verses 1 and 2, he also calls the mountains to be his witnesses. Now, why does he do that? Why does he call mountains to be his witnesses? Well, he's kind of looking around and, and, and he needs a witness to testify to the extent of God's faithfulness and the extent or the length of Israel's fickleness. So he's looking around and he, I need the mountains. They've been around a long time. Bring them in. And finally in verse 3, he calls out Israel, the defendants, to hear his charge. And, and the charge against Israel is fascinating because it's really Israel accusing God. Now look with me at verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Israel has accused God, and this is their accusation. God, you have burdened us. You have burdened us. What was Israel burdened by? Well, they were burdened by God's commands and His laws. They were burdened by their own sin. They were wearied by the circumstances of their lives that, of course, God had ordained. This is fascinating to me that they would accuse God of these things. Now, of course, this is six chapters in, and so for five chapters, Micah has been banging away at Israel, trying to convict them of their sin and trying to, to bring them back to God. And so, of course, they're going to they're feel wearied by that. They're going to feel burdened by that. So that's what we see here in verse 3. But it's interesting, God doesn't respond by saying, okay, get it together, Israel. Stop complaining and be obedient. No, instead he says, my people, 
Remember what I've done for you. Remember what I've done for you. Look at verses 4 and 5. You see, he reminds them first of the Exodus. And so what we see here is, yes, it's an indictment. Yes, it's discipline. But it's loving and gracious indictment. It's a loving and gracious discipline. He loves His people. He's committed to them. So the Exodus, let's review a little bit about what happened in the Exodus event. 400 years in bondage, the people of Israel were to the Egyptians. He, he, uh, God came in and He graciously and miraculously, you remember the stories, He took them out of Egypt. He brought them to the foot of His mountain where His presence was manifest. And He reminded them of His grace and He gave them the covenant and the law. And He says, now be My people. Be My people. You belong to Me. This is the great event of the Old Testament. But He also provided leadership. You notice that He mentions in verse 4, Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He provided leadership on this journey outside of Egypt. You also notice the uh, reference to Balak, the, the Moabite king, and Balaam. Now, I don't have time to get into this, but look it up sometime, maybe this afternoon or this week. Numbers 22 through 24. This is just an example God's giving of how He protected His people from the, the warish attitude that Balak of the Moabites had. He wanted to ransack Israel, and He tried to talk to Balaam into kind of casting this weird spell on Israel, kind of cursing them so that they wouldn't have any luck in the battle. And God restrains Balaam from doing that. So God is protecting His people as they're journeying outside, Exodus, uh, outside Egypt. And notice the reference to Shittim and Gilgal. Well, Shittim was Israel's base before they crossed the Jordan, and Gilgal was their base after they crossed the Jordan. And so he's reminding them, listen, I've been faithful to you, I've guided you, I've protected you on this long journey all the way into the Promised Land. So God is essentially saying here, listen Israel, I redeemed you, I saved you. Don't you remember Every element of salvation was provided for you, whether it's physical deliverance or leadership or protection, direction, and even identification. Because during this whole process, God was constantly saying, you are my people. You are my people. You belong to me. And for Israel, and I alluded to this earlier, the Exodus was the main event of grace. The Exodus was the main event of grace. It colored everything. It was the foundation of Israel's relationship with God. So when, when this particular event happened, everything changed for Israel. The course of history for this particular nation would never be the same again. So it put Israel on a, on a new trajectory, on a new path. There were new obligations and new promises and new expectations. It was so important, this Exodus event, that we see echoes of it throughout the Old Testament, in the Psalms and in Nehemiah and one of his sermons. And here we see it in Micah. God wants to show the Israel nation that He has not burdened them. No, he has delivered them and He has loved them and heaped grace upon grace for them. Now for us, the Exodus event is not our main event of grace. We know that. But we have something even better, don't we? Our main event of grace is centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus has lived, He has died, He has he's risen again to reconcile sinners to God. 
Now everything has changed for us. Nothing will be the same again. The course of history has changed, but not just for one nation, but for every nation. We have new trajectories. We have new expectations. We have new glorious promises that we can hold on to. So for a few minutes, I just want to remind us. I want us to recall together our main event of grace. I want us to recall together God's saving acts through Jesus Christ. So if you are a Christian this morning, this is what you have received because of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life and that means His, his righteousness is 33 years of obedience. It has been transferred to your empty account. Jesus died a brutal death on the cross. That means your sin, your 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years worth of sin has been placed on Jesus Christ. You are forgiven. God's wrath that you deserve, in other words, every angry thought from God that you deserve because of sin has been placed on Jesus. So Jesus gets our sin and we get His righteousness. This is the great exchange, right? But also Jesus rose again after three days and so you too have risen with Him. You have new life. You are called new creations. You have a new hope, a new inheritance, new grace for holiness. Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of His Father who has given Jesus all authority over heaven and earth. That means you are... Uh, scripture later says, uh, I think in Romans, he said, Paul says, we are co-heirs with Jesus. That means we will eventually inherit what Jesus will inherit. So let's, let just one of these ideas, let just one of these facets of salvation sink deep into your heart. What would happen tomorrow morning if you woke up And you let one of these facets of salvation sink deep into your heart and your soul. See how your day goes then. See if you feel burdened then. You know, there's enough here in the Gospel that should send us flying into each of our days with tremendous joy and hope. But oftentimes my experience is burden, discouragement, slogging away day to day. So the key to Christian joy, the key to unburdening yourself is to remember God's grace in Jesus Christ. That's the key. So that's the first picture that we have here. So let's move on to the second picture. So what does it look like now to to function outside God's grace? What does it look like to avoid God's grace? What does it look like to set aside God's grace? So look at verses 6 and 7. Here's a picture of what it means to forget God's grace. Read the verses with you. With, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 river, 10, rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You can see it's just getting progressively more absurd and absurd. Now, this is actually Israel talking, and, and Micah is almost kind of mockingly imitating them, what they must be thinking right now. Because at first glance, you look at this and you might be thinking, wow, this is, this is great. I mean, they are so devoted to God. I mean, they're willing to do all of this, right? 
But you'd think that after God reminds them of His lavish grace, they would say, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for forgetting Your great salvation. Forgive us for neglecting the poor. Forgive us for not loving the way we should love. Forgive us for forgetting Your great salvation. But instead, they present God here with a list of absurd things to do. They're, they're all about the externals. As if somehow the sacrifices that they present could gain favor or regain favor with God. Their tone is one of exasperation and sarcasm, not repentance and humility and genuine devotion. Instead of humility and trying to love their neighbor that they've been basically hating, they try to kind of appease God. You know, to kind of keep Him quiet in the corner. I love John Calvin's comments here. He says, There is then no doubt but that the prophet, Micah, derided this folly which has ever prevailed in the hearts of men. They ever think that God can be pacified by outward rites and frivolous performances. They ever think that, man, that God can be pacified by outward rites and frivolous performances. Somehow Israel's thinking, I, I, think, I think if we give God these sacrifices, we can pacify Him. We can keep Him quiet while we do our own thing over here. So, so God is saying through Micah to Israel, listen, remember my awesome grace. And Israel responds, let's pacify God with some empty rituals. When I was in college, I was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. I mentioned that earlier. It was a great ministry. I grew up in the faith. I, I enjoyed it. By my junior year, I had just, just gotten very, very involved. I was one of those you know, Campus Crusade all-stars, just doing everything for Campus Crusade. You know, going to the meetings, uh, attending Bible studies, trying to lead stuff, mentoring, all this stuff. And I just, you know, there came a point halfway through the year where I recognized, you know what, I, there's something missing here. I'm really involved. I'm doing, everything I'm doing is great stuff. But there's something missing here. I, I felt burdened. I felt wearied. I felt, yeah, I felt like something was missing. As I look back on that time and as I, as I reflect on what I was doing, I, I realized that I had forgotten God's grace. I had forgotten the starting place of Christianity, which is the gospel. Now, I was, I was focused on the what of Christianity, you know, the what I'm supposed to do of Christianity. And I kind of sidelined the why of Christianity, which comes before the what. And I ask myself these questions, and I wonder whether this might be helpful for you all. Do you ever do good things for the wrong reasons? Maybe to impress someone, prove yourself, or gain favor before God or people? Do you ever go through the motions of Christianity, but your heart is far from God? Do you ever feel a sense of pride or superiority because you're doing spiritual things better or more frequently than those around you? Do you ever try to pacify God by doing outward rites and frivolous performances? I, I think if we're honest here, we would answer, yeah, yes, this is me sometimes. So here we see again a picture of what it looks like when grace has been avoided or forgotten or sidelined. So let's move on to the last picture we see in this passage, which is a verse I'm sure most of you are familiar with. Verse 8. Let me read it for us. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you 
to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So here Micah kind of comes back onto the scene. He kind of chimes in. And you can almost hear him saying, enough of these extravagant pretensions. Stop your overly pious words, Israel. And then he says, he has shown you. You should know better, Israel. You should know how to respond to God's grace. Flip back with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Starting in verse 1. This is page 73 in your pew Bibles. So the scene here is God has taken them out of bondage and He's brought them to Mount Sinai and, and that's kind of where we pick up here. Starting in verse 1. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world, whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Isn't that beautiful? First thing that he says to his people when they are there at the mountain is, remember what I have done for you. Remember what I have just done for you. Keep that in your mind. And then he says, and what he does is he establishes, or you could say maybe he reestablishes his covenant with them, his, his, his agreement with them. He, he kind of mentions this, this new relationship of grace that they are about to be a part of. And he identifies them once again as his people, his treasured possession. That's intimate language. That's not that's that's intimate language. It's not religious language. But then we see as we move on through 19 and then into 20, you notice uh, maybe at the top of uh, chapter 20, you see the Ten Commandments. So there's a movement now from okay, my grace, covenant. You you are in a relationship of blessing with the God of the universe. And then there's a movement to now obey me. In other words, this is how. You are to be my people. And that's what the law is. So, now flip back to Micah. So that's what I think, uh, that's what I think Micah meant when he says, He has shown you. He's already told you what to do. He's already told you how to respond to His grace. So then back to Micah. There's three exhortations we see here. And, and here's the thing. They show us what it means for the Israel nation to respond to God's grace in their particular situation. Remember, there's, there's corrupt officials. There's, there's prophets and priests that are, you know, besides Micah and Isaiah, who is his contemporary, there's other prophets and priests that are kind of in cahoots with the government. And they're not doing their job. And so Israel's just going astray. And in particular, they're persecuting the poor and the marginalized. And so that's why Micah says these two particular things. He says, to do justice or to act justly and to love mercy. 
It's interesting because this is the direct application of Israel's covenant or the direct application of God's laws to their particular situation. Act justly. This command means to, it's an intensely relational one. It means to bring peace, to bring reconciliation, to bring justice, to bring wholeness to broken relationships. And of course that makes sense in, in view of what's going on here in Israel's life. It says to love mercy. In other words, having received God's awesome mercy, be a conduit now to those that are broken around you. You see how it just flows from God's grace. I mean, there's a connection here. And the last exhortation, it describes Israel's stance or their, 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 what they should, uh, their, their true stance towards God, what their stance towards God should be. And it's to walk humbly with their God. Now, I think there's two experiences that I've had of, of being humbled. Okay? The, the first experience of humility is, is one that's pretty obvious. You know, someone who points out my sin. You know, I'm reading scripture and, whoa, there it is, my sin. Oh no. You know, or, or, or someone's preaching God's word and, and, and conviction comes upon my heart, right? And I suddenly realize that I'm morally bankrupt and I need Jesus. Okay, that's, that's humbling. But there's another experience of, humble, uh, of, of humility that, that I think we all experience. And that's when God lavishes grace on us. We understand that we don't deserve this. And I think at that moment we feel humbled. We feel humbled. We feel small. I think that's what's going on here. After, after God's grace has been described, the natural response is you're going to walk humbly with your God. You know, there's just going to be a meekness and, 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 a, and a repentant spirit and a contrite heart when, you, when, when God's grace is lavished upon you, when you recognize the depth of His salvation, you're going you're to be humbled. Now, walk is a, is a Hebrew idiom for the whole of a person's life. So the language here depicts, depicts a, a lifelong love relationship with God, a lifelong relationship where humility is, is really the foundations in many ways. So the true people of God, the ones that have let God's grace sink deep into their very bones, they're going to be humble, they're going to be repentant, and they're going to respond in obedience. I think of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and this is perhaps one of the most beautiful transitions in all of Scripture, I think. And I, I know many of you know this verse. Paul says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy... For 11 chapters, Paul has been describing beautifully and in a very thorough way, as we all know, what God has done for us in Jesus. 11 chapters worth of mercy. And he says, therefore, in view of all of this mercy that I, that I hope that you are pondering, now live your life as living sacrifices for me. Give me your life. It makes sense, doesn't it? And so we see not only in the Old Testament this pattern from grace to obedience, but we see it in the New Testament too. So if we can summarize the Bible in two words, I think it would be interesting to ask Jeremy and the other pastors, how would you summarize the Bible in two words? Well, this is how I would summarize the Bible in two words. Now, this is my answer today at least. Maybe I'll change my mind. I would say grace and covenant. Or we could maybe say grace and law. Or perhaps we should really say, looking at this passage and thinking through our study, grace then covenant. And if this is the summary of the Bible, then our intersection with this summary of the Bible probably should be remember God's grace 
and respond with your life. The order is so important. Jenny and I, um, we love musicals and plays, and, and you know, of course, you, you all know that musicals have different acts: Act One, Act Two, sometimes Act Three, and if it's really bad, Act Four. You know. <laughs> now you, you you jump in on Act Two or Act Three, and Act One does not. Or you, you need Act One to jump in on Act Two and Act Three. I mean, it, things are not going to click. If you jump in in the middle, right? So the order is important when you're watching a play, when you're watching a musical. I think the Christian life is a two-act play. The first act is we are in the audience. We are in the seats. We are not moving. We're not scampering for the stage. We are taking it all in. And what we see is God's glory in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We see His great salvation and we are drinking it in. We are drinking deeply of the gospel. And that is act one. And we need to stay there. We need to linger there sometimes. And then, the Lord graciously invites us up on stage and He asks us to enact. He asks us to be obedient. He asks us to obey. He asks us to share our faith. He asks us to serve. He asks us to do lots of things. He asks us to do 500 things according to Jesus. That's act two. And, And here's the thing. Burdened, joyless Christians, they make the entire Christian life act two. I think we've seen in the Old and in the New Testaments, grace always precedes law. In other words, God's faithfulness always precedes His expectation of our faithfulness. What does this mean? It means that the Christian life is first about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And, and, and not first about what you can do for Him. Let me say that again. The Christian life is first about what God has done for you in Jesus and not first about what you can do for Him. Do you think more about how God has been faithful to you in Jesus? Or do you, do you think more, do you ponder more about how you should be faithful to God? When you open up God's Word or when you hear it being preached, do you take delight in God's amazing grace for you? Or do you only feel the weight of His commandments? I love what the Puritan John Owen says. He says, Holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing of the gospel in our souls. Holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing of the gospel in our souls. In other words, if you want to be holy, the starting place is the gospel. You need to go deeper into the gospel. You need to remember His grace for you through Jesus. That means every single ounce of energy for God, every bit of obedience, every effort made towards holiness, every opportunity to share the gospel, every act of service, every kind word, everything must be a response to what God has already done for you. And any time it's not a response, all you have is empty religion. Now here's the amazing thing. If you linger in the gospel, you will find motivation. Of course I want to obey God. Of course I want to spend myself for Jesus. Of course I want to take the gospel to the hard places. Of course. You'll also find resources. Everything you need for holiness and obedience is found in the gospel. It's found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus' death bought grace to save you from sin, but it also bought grace to grow you in holiness. 
So I, so I wonder this morning, what energizes, what energizes your obedience? What propels you towards holiness? Is it to prove yourself? Is it to gain favor? Is it to appease or even pacify God? Or is it the grace of Jesus Christ? Let me close with a quote from a pastor. The secret of the gospel is that we actually do more when we hear less about all we need to do for God and hear more about all that God has already done for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are tempted to make the whole